We're turning in our Bibles to Malachi's prophecy. And as I've already said, we've already spent two weeks in our studies and we're now in our third week and we're beginning to enter into chapter 2. And God willing, if time permits, we will get down to verse 9 of chapter 2. And our title this evening is Covenant Corruption Condemned. Covenant Corruption Condemned. And we take our reading up at verse 1. And now, O ye priests... This commandment is for you. If ye will not hear, and if ye will not lay it to heart, to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already, because ye do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace. And I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways but have been partial in the law. You will recall from our first week's study that Malachi the prophet very forcibly brought to the people from God's perspective the first symptomatic sign of their spiritual bankruptcy. And we must remember that although Malachi is the instrument, God's messenger in this case, God is citing the case against his people himself. And in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 1, we saw that he cites, first of all, their sign that they had become lukewarm in their faith, that the zeal had gone, the power had gone from their relationship and covenant with God. And the first sign, of course, you remember, was they were completely insensitive to God's divine deep love towards them. You remember God gave a fresh pronouncement of his love in verse 2. I have loved you deeply. Yet God says that they replied back to him, Wherein have you loved us? And God gives the pronouncement of the people's protest against his love. They're actually questioning, doubting God's love. 
They're asking God and challenging him, prove to us, where is the evidence in our lives of your love? And so we find thirdly that God gave the proof of his love and he told them that he loved them in this. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. God loved them in that electing love right from the very beginning. Then you will remember that in our second study, we dwelt on the second symptomatic sign of the people's backsliding in verses 6 through to 14. And this was not so much that they doubted God's love, but we find out that God saw that they were guilty and charged them with despising his name. Several times we find that his name is mentioned. And in verses 6 through to 14, we found how God was leveling, particularly at the leadership in religious Israel, leveling towards them the accusation that they were compromising in their priestly duties in the land. That the sins of the people were only symptomatic of the sins of their leaders. We saw how, as priests, God had given to them his very best and committed to them his charge of worship and representing God to the people and the people to God. Yet although God had given to them his very best, he expected their best in turn. But we find that all they did was use God's best for themselves. We looked after number one. And we concluded from that study that their worship was careless and their service became burdensome. They were asking the question, what's the point in serving God in a world that we live in like this? God isn't honoring us. His power and glory has departed from our midst. What's the point? And then they moved on to the stage where they were keeping the best things that God was giving them for themselves And they actually got to the position where they thought that they were deceiving God. Now this evening we're coming at the beginning of chapter 2 to look at God's condemnation upon this compromising priesthood. We've already looked at, in verses 6 through to 14, God's charge against them in the various ways that they were offering false and defiled sacrifices to the Lord. But now he comes in verses 1 to 9 of chapter 2 to actually pronounce his condemnation upon these compromising leaders. You will see, if you read a little bit through the whole of chapter 2, that there is a great emphasis on covenants. You find the word covenant in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 8, in verse 10, and in verse 14. And there are three covenants that are mentioned specifically in all of verses 1 to 9 that we'll consider tonight. In verses 1 to 9, there is the covenant with Levi. I should say three covenants emphasized in the whole of the chapter. In verse 10 to 12, there is a covenant of God mentioned that he made with Israel. And then in verse 13 through to 17, there is the covenant made with God in marriage between the man in Israel and the wife of his youth. And God is charging each time, three times, Israel with breaking the covenant. The priests were were breaking their Levitical covenant. 
The people were breaking their covenant that had been made with Israel. And the husbands were breaking the covenant that was made with their Jewish wives of their youth. They were divorcing those wives and marrying pagan wives and following pagan gods. Now for our consideration tonight is this Levitical covenant that was made and specified in verses 1 to 9. We need to ask the question, first of all, when this covenant was formed. For unless we understand when and how it was formed, we'll not understand the significance of God's condemnation for them breaking it. Now, some people think that this covenant was formed when, you remember, Moses was coming down Mount Sinai after receiving the Ten Commandments, and the people of Israel were making merry and worshipping the golden calf. And the Levites stood with Moses and stood with God. They separated themselves unto God, and they were actually used as God's instrument to slay all those who would not stand loyal to God and would follow foreign gods. But most scholars, and I myself believe, that this covenant with Levi refers specifically to the covenant of life and peace that we read about in Numbers 25. And if you wish, you can turn to it, but I'm going to uh, recap on the story there. And that is the story about how I believe this first covenant of life and peace with Levi was bestowed on a man called Phinehas. Phinehas was a Levite. And Phinehas took a great stand against evil and he honored God in the nation. Now let me give you a, a bit of contextual background to this story. This is before Israel had entered into the promised land of Canaan. And you may have heard about the false prophet Balaam. And it was Balaam who tried to curse the nation. But Balaam, of course, was unsuccessful in his curse. Because when he tried to curse the people, God, you remember, turned his curse into a blessing. And God blessed the people through Balaam's attempt to curse them. Now, because the curse didn't work, Balaam tried again. He tried to corrupt the nation by encouraging them to worship false god. And the god was called Baal Peor. And he encouraged them to worship Baal Peor through the practice of sexual immorality with Moabite women. And that was part of the worship of Baal Peor. It was a fertility religion and there was this fertility practice associated with the worship of Baal. Now, once that was starting among the people of Israel, Moses made a pronouncement. He pronounced that all those who were practicing such immorality in, in worship of Baal Peor were to be put to death. All of these abominations were to be destroyed. Now, picture the scene for a moment. It's so graphically outlined for us in Numbers 25. At the very moment that Moses makes this pronouncement, and the people start weeping because of the consequence of their filthy sin of immorality and idolatry. One man, bold in his rebellion and his sinfulness, a man called Zimri, went forth, took a Midianite prostitute woman, and before all the people, before Moses and before God, took her into his own tent, committed fornication with her, in bold rebellion to the will of God. Among that crowd of God's people, there was that man called Phinehas. Phinehas was Aaron's grandson, therefore a Levite. 
And he was outraged by this man's arrogance before the clear word of God. And Phinehas, in godly, jealous zeal, took a javelin in his hand, went into the tent, killed Zimri, killed Cosby, the Midianitish woman, and thrust the javelin through her belly, through the child of sin, in honor of God. It's a shocking story. It seems such a violent act, some may say, such an unnecessary act. But for this deed, God said to him and to his descendants, I give unto you my covenant of peace, and he shall have it in his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood. And it was the deed of Phinehas that turned away God's wrath from the people. I want you to remember that. It was this zeal, this deed of fervent jealousy for the name of God that turned away God's wrath from his backsliding, idolatrous, immoral people. Now, why should Malachi mention this? Well, very simply, Malachi wanted the priests of his own day to compare themselves with their forefather, Phinehas. Do you see it? He wanted them to compare their service and their zeal with their forefather. Here was Phinehas, who showed that he held God's name in reverential awe. But what is Malachi accusing the priests of his day of doing? They are despising God's name. Phinehas, because of his act, experienced peace and life during a very turbulent time in Israel's history. But as we learnt in previous weeks, this is far from a turbulent time in Israel's history in Malachi's day. In fact, it's, it's a time of known events. It's a time of peace. Nothing seems to be happening. But these people are going to lose peace and life. God, in verse 2 and 3, says, I'm going to take away from you peace and life. And rather than the priests, like in Phinehas's day, taking and turning away God's wrath from the people, the actions of the priests in Malachi's day, despising God's name, is actively bringing God's wrath upon the nation. That's why God brings up Phinehas and this Levitical covenant. Now, this series is called Malachi's Modern Message, and the question Hangs, how do we apply such a truth to today and especially to the church of Jesus Christ? Well, I'm sure that if any of you are spiritually adept at all, you'll be able to make the application right away. The early church lived in a time of turmoil. Nero was feeding them to the lions, setting their heads alight on pitches. They were tarred and set alight in arenas, fed to the lions, Chained in dungeons, sawn asunder, burned at the stake. Yet the fact of the matter is, was there a greater time than that early church day where the apostolic power was displayed and God's glory was seen? And it was said that they turned the world upside down. It wasn't a time of peace. It was a time of persecution. 
And when the reformers come on the scene after the dark ages of the rule of Rome, we find that they too are persecuted. All manner of evil is spoken against them. They're burned at the stake. They're beheaded. The Puritans come on the scene and they're excluded from the established church. The 18th century revivalists like John Wesley and George Whitfield are put out of their church pulpits in the Church of England because they're preaching a gospel to the masses that the masses are hearing and believing. John Bunyan is put in prison because he's a nonconformist and preaches the unadulterated gospel and not an ordained minister. And all of these great men of God who had the fire of God in their bones and knew the blessing of God's Spirit and their ministry, they didn't live in peaceful times. But here are we tonight in the 21st century and we're living in peace. We have freedom to preach the gospel. But where is the glory? The glory has departed from the church, certainly in the West. And I'm asking the question tonight, could it be that in this affluent and comfortable age we live in, we have become bored with our blessings, just like the priests in Malachi's day. And we are bored with our blessings to the point that familiarity with all the things that we have in Christ has bred contempt. Too strong, you say? I'm accused often, I think, of being too strong, but I happen to see it as being too obvious. Too obvious in its application that this is the only truth that I could possibly bring to you from this portion of Scripture tonight. That we live in an age that is second to none in relation to the freedom that we have to proclaim the gospel. Yet we are colder today than any church that has ever lived in the West. David Levy in his commentary on Malachi says that he can agree and I can agree too with a man called V. Raymond Edmund in his statement when he said... In an undisciplined age when liberty and license have replaced law and loyalty. There is a greater need than ever before that we be disciplined to be disciples. Can I read that again? In an undisciplined age when liberty and license have replaced law and loyalty. There is a greater need than ever before that we be disciplined to be his disciples. And I'm going to present to you tonight the proposal that we here in Ulster, the church of Jesus Christ, is under the disciplining hand of God. It was no light thing to be a priest in the Old Testament. It was a gracious gift of God through his covenant with Levi. And we saw last week at the tail end that it is no light thing either to be a priest in the New Testament sense. That is what we are. There is no sacerdotal order of priests and making sacrifices in the Old Testament sense today. We're in the age of grace. That's all been done away and superseded. But the fact of the matter is we find in the New Testament that we are priests all of us, we believe, male and female, that we are priesthood. 
We have a priesthood, the priesthood of all believers. And we are to worship God and bring spiritual sacrifices to God. We saw that one is to bring our body to God. Another is to bring our substance to God, our financial giving. Another is to bring our praise to God, morning and evening. Bringing our prayers to God, bringing our good works to God. Even to the extent we saw Paul outlined He talked about bringing lost souls to God as an offering, as a priest. Now, in verses 5 to 7, Malachi outlines for the people in his day what the duties of the priest ought to be. And I think they're very applicable to we as New Testament priests in this particular age. If you look down at them, he describes the standard of a priest according to the life of their forefather Levi with whom the covenant was made. And basically what he's saying is, this is the first priest that I made this covenant with and I want you to live up to his standard. Look at it, verse 5. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him. For the fear wherewith he feared me, and was afraid before my name. He feared the Lord, and he obeyed the Lord. I'm not sure that Christians today, to a large extent, even know what the fear of the Lord is. A reverential fear and awe that leads to obedience. That was necessary in the priest it's necessary in us in verse 6 at the beginning we see that he receives the word of God and he teaches it the law of truth was in his mouth and iniquity was not found in his lips we have received the word we have it in our hands but the question is are we teaching others teaching and making disciples in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit and that word iniquity at the beginning of verse 6 the pulpit commentary says could be translated unfair decision There's no unfair decision in his mouth because a priest also operated on occasions as a judge. And he was to be impartial in his wisdom and in his judgment. Such wisdom is not just for elders. It should be in all of our hearts as priests before God. Then the third thing we see in the middle of verse 6. He walked with me in peace and equity. He lives what he teaches. It's not just the talk, it is the walk. An intimate communion, as James said in chapter 1, verse 22. Not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of the same. Then at the end of verse 6. And did turn many away from iniquity. A priest ought to be a man who turns others away from sin. Is that what we do? The problem was in Malachi's day that sin had shut their mouths. They were done. The great commission that we are given is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And Paul asked the question in Romans 10, how shall they hear without a preacher? And I have a real question of myself and of believers in this age. Why their mouths are so shut in proclaiming the gospel? Fifthly, in verse 7, the priest's lips should keep. That word keep could be translated guard, knowledge. They should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. 
He is to guard and preserve the law of God from perversion. And how many Christians are doing that today? How many leaders are doing it? That's our duty. To keep the doctrine of God pure. But the priests in Malachi's day actually, verse 8, led the people astray. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. They were leading people astray from God. And God charges them with defiling the covenant that he made with Levi. He condemns them for covenantal corruption And when we ask the question, what will God do to them? We see very clearly at the very beginning in verse 2, God says, This is my judgment upon you. I will curse your blessings. If you underline your Bible, underline that. I will curse your blessings. And it wasn't just the blessings that they inherited as descendants of Levi through the Levitical covenant. But it was also meaning that the blessing that they would make over the people would be cursed. As they ministered to the people, they would minister a curse. Do you know what the ironic benediction and blessing is? In Numbers chapter 6 and verse 23 through to 27... The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron, unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Imagine that. This Levitical priest pronounces this ironic blessing that we know all too well off by heart. And God says, as you try to bless these people, I'm going to make you curse them. I'm going to turn your blessings into cursing. In Deuteronomy 28, God had told the people very clearly what would happen if they didn't obey his word. Instead of Israel being a light unto the Gentiles and a blessing to the whole world, God said that he would turn their blessings into a curse and he would make them a curse to all of humanity. And I'm asking the question as we seek to grapple with the modern message of Malachi and apply it to our contemporary age, is it possible, and I'm asking the question only, Is it possible that God's people today as the church of Jesus Christ is more of a hindrance than a help to the world around it. Is it possible? Yeah, I would say it's more than possible. It's probable. I personally would go farther and say it's inevitable. Now this condemnation to the priests is connected a bit with chapter 3 and verse 9. If you look at it for a moment. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. 
You see, God's people were to bring tithes and offering, and through the tithes and offerings, the priests would actually be fed. Their livelihood came from many of these offerings. But because they were sinning against God, God cursed the crops, cursed their seeds. The people became poor. They didn't bring the offerings for the priests. And because they didn't bring those priestly offerings, the priests went hungry. And God is saying to them, because you're sinning against my covenant, you're only hurting yourself. You're not getting fed. Let me take you a moment back to the Garden of Eden to Eve and how she was deceived in the very beginning. And we have there a cameo how every man, woman, boy or girl has been deceived since. And it's simply this. Satan said, yea, has God said. He was accusing God in the mind of Eve of disenfranchising her from some kind of blessing that she should have had and God was withholding her from her. Everyone who sins does exactly the same. And don't you say that you are not guilty of that as a believer yourself. Because one of the chief reasons I feel that we resist God's will in our lives is we feel that we're going to be robbed of something. Is that not true? But what God is saying to these priests is, I'm going to curse your blessings. And by robbing me of what I am due, you're only robbing yourself. Is it not a revelation to you? It certainly has been to me. Not just from the case of Balaam, as we've already mentioned, that God can turn someone's curses into blessings. But how often do we ever contemplate this possibility, indeed this probability and inevitability when God's people live like this, God will turn their blessings into cursings. I'm going to let that hang in the air because I'm just not sure 100% how that is applied in our day and age, but it has to be. Not one jot or tittle of God's word fails. And I'm contemplating how in the church the blessings that we have inherited can now perhaps be cursings because it is a form of godliness much of the time but denies and lacks the power of God. And God perhaps could be using those very things that he has blessed in the past as a curse upon us to discipline us. And I think you would agree with me, it's painful enough when God removes his blessings from us. But what must it be like when God turns the very things that are meant to be blessings and makes them a curse to us? How painful and terrible that must be. In verse 9, God said, Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people according as you have not kept my ways but have been partial in the way. And the Lord is threatening to punish them in a manner that fits the crime. You see what God's saying? You have shown contempt for me, the living God. And for that crime, the punishment will fit it. I will make you contemptible before all the people. 
You will be despised. You will be humiliated before the people because you have despised and humiliated me because you have defiled me. Remember he said that in chapter 1 and verse 7. You've defiled me. I will figuratively defile you in front of the whole nation. This is one of the most difficult verses in the whole of this passage. Not difficult to understand, difficult to take in. Verse 3, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn face, and one shall take you away with it. Because they had defied God. You know what God said he was going to do? In these sacrifices and offering to God, the offal, the inward parts were removed. And inside those inward organs of digestion, there was dung, animal excrement that was removed along with the offal. And the offal and the excrement were taken without the camp to the valley of Hinnom and were burned outside the camp because they would have defiled the sacrifice. And God said, I'm going to take that excrement and that offal and I'm going to spread it upon your face to defile you because you've defiled me. The Jewish Targum thought that this verse was so grotesque that it dispensed with the metaphor and translate the verse, I will make visible on your faces the shame of your crimes, but do not dilute God's word. If a preacher said such a thing, he would be pulled right away down from the pulpit. But friends, tonight God has said this. The seriousness of their sin was such that he pronounced such a defining judgment upon them. In other words, he was expelling them outside the camp. He was showing them up. Their hidden sin would be hidden no longer. Now it's impossible to not see the New Testament counterpart of this truth. Because the Lord Jesus in the book of Revelation pronounced to that lukewarm, nauseating church of Laodicea, because you're neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. It was Matthew Henry, that great commentator, that said, nothing profanes the name of God more than the misconduct of those whose business it is to do honor to it. Do you know it's possible for a New Testament Christian in this day and age, just like the Old Testament priest in Malachi's day, to be disqualified for service? To be defiled to such an extent that God cannot and will not use you Paul had a fear of that. And so he buffered the body, as he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, to bring it into subjection. He used holy violence to make sure, as he said, when he preached to others, lest he should become a castaway. The word is disqualified. This has been a piercing sword through my heart. And I thought to myself today, imagine 
if God fitted my punishment according to my crimes. Just imagine it, if you will. I've said before, and we've shared together, imagine if God judged us the way we judge other people. You don't have to imagine it for too long. You know why? Because the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 7 that there's a day coming that we will be judged as we have judged others. But let me take you a step further. For the point that is being made here is imagine if God treated us with the the same contempt that we at times treat him. Imagine if I'm allowed to make this illustration. You come to the throne of grace in prayer and you pray and you pray and you pray and five weeks later God says to himself, oh, I haven't answered any of those prayers. I've been too busy with more important issues in the universe. We expect God to be faithful to keep his word, don't we? And why is it? Why is it that we think that we have the privilege not to be faithful to him? Not to give everything. And these priests fell down because they forgot the blessings of God were dependent upon their walking in obedience. You can't get blessed if you're going to be disobedient. And the hymn is correct. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But the message of Malachi, if it is anything, is encapsulated in chapter 3, verse 6. I am the Lord, and I change not. God still looks for obedience to bless. But friends, tonight I believe that the, the, the weight of the message that is on my heart and has pierced my soul today as I've been before God's word is the cry of Malachi to his own priestly people. How do you fare in comparison to your forefather Levi and Phinehas? How do you measure up? The priests of Malachi's day were well in the balance and found wanting. And I'm asking us tonight on my own heart, how do we compare with our forefathers? What have we done with the privileges that we have because of their faithful endurance? They have passed down the charge of the gospel in their trust to us. What have we done with it? How are our lives measuring up to the standard that they lived? I read a profound statement in the last couple of weeks from an author called John White, and I want you to listen very carefully to it. He is writing on the subject of evangelical pride in the world today, and he says this, We all forget our beginnings. We all accept the costly heritage that has come down to us, forgetting that we never paid the price for it. We are better off financially because they accepted Lupe. We enjoy the respect of our neighbors while they endured the scorn. Yet the price we have paid for our respectability is a far bigger one than they paid for their faithfulness 
for we have lost God's smile and are too blind to recognize it. Can I quote you that last line again? We enjoy the respect of our neighbors while they endured scorn, yet the price we have paid for our respectability is far bigger one than they paid for their faithfulness because we have lost God's smile. Yet we're blind. Is not what the Lord Jesus Christ said to Laodicea? You say, I am rich. I am increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. The trouble at times with God's gifts is we begin to trust them and not God. We become proud of our heritage yet we fail to live up to its standards. Oh, we love to quote our forefathers, but who of us will live up to the lives that they lived? This is why, friends, we do not have the power. And I believe the church in the West today, like Malachi's priesthood, is eaten up with evangelical pride, perhaps more in Ulster than anywhere else. And because of it, we've lost God's blessing. Could it be even to the extent that our blessings have been turned to cursings? C.S. Lewis said that pride was that complete anti-God state of mind. I think that's tremendous. But he went on to say that it was that complete anti-God state of mind, pride, that made the devil the devil. And what about the blessings that he had? Second to none. A place that no other angelic being had. All the blessings were his But pride caused him to abuse them. And they became a curse. And so he fell. And he was the first to fall. But he will not be the last. Friends, can I end on this note. Turning our attention to the New Testament. The New Testament knows of three kinds of Christians. You can turn to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In verses 9 to 17 of 1 Corinthians 3, we read of three types of workmen. Three children of God, or if you like, servants of God. First of all, there is the master builder. Then Paul talks about the shoddy builder. Then he mentions the destructive worker. Now, the master builder is the one who lays a good foundation and builds a good structure of good works to glorify God. Then the shoddy builder is careless and unskilled in his building process, and what he builds does not endure. And then the destructive worker, he doesn't know how to be constructive at all, and he seeks to pull down rather than to build up. 
And all of them, as we analyze this passage, use different materials in their building. The house that is built by the master builder, that lasting edifice, is built by great materials. Lasting materials like gold, silver, and precious stones. But the building built by the shoddy workman is built by not worthless material, but less valuable and less durable material, wood, hay, and stubble. And the punchline of Paul's passage is simply this. Every person's service, every child of God one day at the judgment seat of Christ will be tested by fire. What sort of work it is. And it will be more ruthless than Malachi's little four chapters. The combustible materials will inflame and disappear and the shoddy builder will suffer loss but he himself shall be saved yet as by fire by the skin of his teeth. You'll be saved my friend But what if the edifice of your Christian life falls down around your ears? But those who will have built on a sure foundation with gold and silver and precious stones to the glory of God, they will receive our reward. But friends, what I want you to see tonight is that Malachi's modern message is that as his priests received judgment, they deserved. We will receive it too. Hallelujah, Christ took the judgment for our sins on Calvary. We will never be condemned for those sins, as Romans 8, 1 says. There is now no longer any condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. But I warn you, as Paul warned the Galatians, God is not mocked. And whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Be not deceived. And I feel that perhaps all of us could be in our day and age in the West, particularly in this province, and certainly could I say it in this church, under the discipline of our Father. But the real question that Malachi would pose to us tonight and that I ask us all is, are we learning the lessons of that discipline? For if we don't, our blessings will continue to be a curse as God's hand is heavy upon us. What's the antidote? It's found in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 31, Paul said, If we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. In other words, if we would erect a mini judgment seat in our hearts to judge ourselves before that great day, if we would analyze our hearts, search ourselves and see if there be any wicked way in us, We wouldn't need to be under such a discipline. We are still disciplined for every son whom he receives, he chastens. But nevertheless, the choice is ours. And we can't get away from it. 
And oh, my prayer for myself is that I would see that my life is now dictating word for word into Christ's lips what he is going to say to me at that adjudication of service on the day of judgment. I am writing it now with my life. And oh, that today I and you would live in the light of that day in eternity. It was George Whitfield who said, Oh, that I could always live for eternity, preach for eternity, pray for eternity, and speak for eternity. There's a poem that I've quoted to you before and others have done so, but it never leaves me when I think of this subject. And I must leave it with you again tonight. It goes like this. Listen carefully. He would have me rich, but I stand here poor, stripped of all but his grace. And memory will run like a haunted thing down the years that I cannot retrace. And my penitent heart will well nigh break with tears that I cannot shed. And I'll cover my face with my empty hands and I'll bow my uncrowned head. Our Lord lived his life for our eternity. May we live in the light of eternity for him.